Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. So, how are you, Rob? I'm feeling like a disruptor. Wow, okay, that's, that's, is that a good feeling to feel? I don't know if it's a good feeling, because obviously being a disruptor brings many challenges with it. Mm. But I've been thinking a lot about this word, disruptor, and mm-hmm. I have a big respect for those that aim to disrupt the structures of society and uh, shake things up. And Mm. I feel like the artist we're going to be talking to today does Mm -hmm. just that. He is filled with a kind of precision and focus. And uh, I think his work is analysing, you know, structures within society and hopefully Mm -hmm. making a positive impact on the world and both visually but also socially. So, yeah, I've been feeling very inspired um, while researching. Amazing, Rob. What a great guest for Talk Art. How exciting. Yes. Well, we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Troy Mitchie! <laughs> Thank you for the introduction. Of course. How are you, Troy? Where do we find you and how are you feeling? I'm good. Um, it's a little tense in New York right now, but I live mm-hmm. in um, Sunnyside, Queens, but my studio is still in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Can you oh, get to Bushwick. your studio? Not yeah, at the moment. Far. It is, yeah. It's it's kind of. I'm I'm too freaked out to get on the train or anything like that. Yeah. Right. So sure, if I were sure. to walk, it would be an hour. And um, you're feeling the 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 vibe there is pretty scary, or are you someone that's are you quite like caught up in it more so? Um. I mean, I'm somebody who who likes solitude, <laughs> so I don't mind being indoors, but just going to do simple things. I mean, the there's just a certain air when you leave the the confines of your space. So right. I'm just working from my apartment. I'm still teaching, finishing the end of this semester through Zoom, and then just doing drawings. Oh wow! Have so you you're, you're teaching Zooming. through Zoom? Yeah. Have you found that? Yeah. Uh, it's it's difficult. So um, it's good that the graduate students already did their thesis in painting. And then we basically went to spring break. And that's when things started to intensify. So I've yeah. been um, distancing for a while, like since early March. Wow. Right, right, right. And you're able to work at home on your, on your own art. You're finding that 
okay? Sort of. Um, as a collage artist, it's difficult for me to only work with one thing. So I'm, I'm trying to um, go back to, I mean, I've, I've been drawing since I was like four or five. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to go back to just that medium for now. And what are you using to draw? Are you doing just, pencil drawings or pen? Or? Just graphite, yeah. And then I did bring a couple of um, like brushes to do ink wash. Oh, cool. Uh, but I'm not somebody who likes, I don't like having work in the space where I live. Okay. Uh, right. So that's difficult too. Are you, are you there by yourself? Yes. But you like to keep your work, your bit, like your business, separate to your home life. Yeah. Like I love the, I love going to the studio. I kind of treat it um, like another job, like nine to five. I work better in the mornings, and then mm. pretty much by afternoon, I'm done <laughs> for the day. <laughs> and do you do you have like? So do you have projects that you set yourself when you get to the studio or do you get there and improvise with... um, Because you were saying yourself just now, you're a collage artist. That's how fundamentally you will uh, describe your practice, right? Mm -hmm. And and with that, what is the structure that comes with that or can you be free and play around with that? I mean, it's it's definitely um, a freeing practice. Uh, I do... I have... A lot of my work is research-based, Um, so there are moments where I'm not always making, so I'm either reading, watching films, um, listening to music, just kind of trying to get a certain grasp around all this knowledge. And then when I go to the studio and work, um, I do different things. So I I don't, I, I have the paper weaving, so I'll do that for a little bit. I'll do drawings on the magazines and then that'll switch to drawing with the sewing machine, um, and then kind of each material that I use is kind of built up. So whether I have to paint paper that then gets glued in, um, collecting objects. So it is kind of, I don't know, there's like a lot of facets to just getting to the point of being able to make. Yeah. Well, let's break down everyone then because every one of them is very unique to your practice and the fact that you've, you integrate every single one of them into your pieces makes them so striking, so particular to you so mm. let's talk about let's talk about the magazines first of all your uh where you source the magazines from and what the images are that you're drawn to that you then collage into your works they in the beginning it was um a friend who was giving me magazines so she i think at the time she'd go visit portland oregon and they mm. i don't know if this is true but they had i think the lot of the largest erotic warehouse in the country really uh, yeah it's good and to I, would, know. I don't know if that's true anymore but uh i would just tell her what i was looking for and it was just predominantly magazines that featured men of color which are, are difficult to come across um so when i was using those a vintage I, ones or contemporary the vintage or... ones so normally okay. 70s or 80s mm. um there's just what is certain... it about that period what is it about that time there's an aesthetic to them. Um, they're very interesting to look at just in terms of the layout of the pages. There's like a, like a modernist type of design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really struck by the matteness of the ink. So they're not like super glossy, not super... Um, I mean, I guess this is pre-Photoshop. There's just mm-hmm. something about the men that feel real. 
mm-hmm. that I feel is, is very different from magazines now. But at the same time, I've heard you discuss this before and you realised very quickly that um, these magazines were kind of born out of fetishism and fetish and often mm-hmm. made for like a white audience. So mm-hmm. they're people of colour, black, um, brown, Mar- male Marginalised bodies. communities, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah. That's, that is a part of the... I think the interest in the magazine, one, comes from just growing up kind of in a, a smaller um, community. And kind mm-hmm. of that was the way, I guess I'm an older millennial. So this was, I wasn't <laughs> total, like we were, would have computer classes, but everything was still pretty much analog. So I sourced a lot of my pop culture from magazines, like going yes. to the grocery right, right. store, the pharmacy, and then from television, um, mainly watching MTV when I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> but, uh, you were born in 1985, weren't you? Yeah. And in, in, you, you grew up in El Paso in Texas? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was that like growing up there then? For, what, what were these magazines you had access to and what was the art scene like? I don't know if I was really aware of an art scene as a kid, um, but the, the magazines, I don't know, I, I kind of credit El Paso for being a place where I, I just was actually living in this kind of collaged space or like an amalgamation mm. of different cultures since it's a border town. Um, what does it actually mean, a border town then? Because I've come across that in your interviews. Oh, it's, it's literally on the, the south uh, border between Texas and Mexico. So the, the Rio Grande River um, is kind of the line which differentiates um, the United States from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very weird because in El Paso you can literally see Mexico when it's like a mile away. Like I see the river, I see um, this territory that is allocated as something othered. Um, right. But as a kid, there's just so much crossover. I think it's, um, I think I've heard it's like the largest binational um, and bilingual community. So there are often people coming in over the bridge from Ciudad Juarez. Um, for work, I went to school um, throughout my whole education with people from Mexico. And then um, I think my family, I grew up with the, my mom's side. Um, I think they're like fifth generation Mexican. Right. So there was a lot of, I don't know, like there was no, everybody spoke in Spanglish. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't know, there was no... Um, and I, I never had any sense that that was strange. It's also a very highly um, militarized location. Wow. Um, so this is, this is the collage effect then. I've, I get it. So you, you yeah. are living in an environment where literally everything is crossing over and there isn't a definitive like, language or a definitive race or a definitive style. Mm-hmm. It's like, so that, and that, that has definitely played into your work. Is there an actual, an actual literal wall there or is it like... The bridge is the border. The water is the border. There is a wall. So before I remember as a kid, I mean, I haven't looked at images of that in a long time. It was like a chain link fence. But along that fence, um, there's border patrol stationed there every certain amount of yards. And they're there 24 hours a day. Um, so it is a highly guarded wow. um, border. And now there is, I believe, Bush built up this more intense wall. Yeah, um, exactly. And obviously there's been all the politics more recently, hasn't there, with Trump? Yeah. And Definitely, which has been 
um, infuriating. <laughs> and I, I heard you speak before about this idea of um, the kind of lies that are associated with immigrants and mm -hmm. the kind of unfair, you know, associations that are put, put on immigrants when actually a lot of the time it's not true. It's just for people's own political advantage. Stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a certain type of, um, I mean, I think it comes from this idea of, of a fear of the other. Yes. Um, but most of, um, in my experience, um, just living in, in this type of community, it's people that are just trying to have a better life, better families. Um, mm. I don't know, it's, it's about survival. And there's just been so much um, misconception um, in terms of the media, but also, I don't know, I feel like El Paso, it's always been a pretty safe environment to grow up in. Despite kind of all these ideas of like gang violence and drugs and yes, that that is there, but it's not it's not like the the broader story of that community. So so we've got so we've got the magazines as part of your collage with mm -hmm. the uh, vintage erotic in, and mm -hmm. then we talked about the weaving, which is another uh, key into your work, which always feels to me very crafty. Which I don't know if that comes or where does that come from? Does that come from an experience? Of, of weaving, but you weave a magazine and paper together, right, to create like a background? Yes. The weaving is new, and I think at first, well, not that new. So with, um, I've pretty much been only working in collage since grad school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, when I would get kind of at a place where, or just out of frustration from juxtap juxtaposing images next to each other, I would sometimes sometimes just weave certain things together as just a material. And some of those experiments surfaced when I started to do um, assemblage work on the wood panels. And right. I was in a show at the New Museum um, called Trigger Gender as a Tool or Weapon. And mm -hmm. I saw this painting by the artist Nancy Brody Brooks. And there were these kind of grid-like paintings that were just called, um, I believe they were called protest t-shirts. And then I realized like, oh, I don't really need, like my, the substrate that I'm using could actually just be the material. Because um, when you zoom into fabric, it is kind of a grid. So that's where the, the weaving comes from. So you've gone like macro on it rather than micro. Yes. Oh, no, micro on it rather than macro, I mean. You've kind of zoomed in and that's, the quality we're seeing this weaving is as if you've got fabric and you've gone in times 10. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And then, so then sewing as well plays into the work and you actually sew, which I love through paper and around mm -hmm. figures and around the magazines. Yeah. The sewing is new. Um, and it's, I actually don't really know how to sew anything, but I know how <laughs> to do these settings on the machine. And I just use this as a way of mark making and it's kind of just, I don't really know what's going to happen until the thread starts going through the, the pages. Uh -huh. um, but I am in, enjoying it as, as just this kind of other material or component to add to the work. Why do you, you think collage became, it's become your medium, the Troy Mitchie medium? I think it always was. And I just, when I think back to like early art education, I, I was really into drawing, and that led me into different avenues. Like I was thinking about architecture, 
um, because of drafting. And I used to love to just do portraits. And for some reason, I, I had convinced myself that to be an artist, you had to be a painter. So then mm -hmm. I, I majored in painting. Um, and I had been working with um, oils, traditionally pastels. But on my paintings, I could never just only paint. I would sew into them or I would um, cut into them uh, kind of glue paper on the surface. Mm -hmm. And when I got to grad school and I realized um, that I could do anything I wanted, I like quickly was like, well, forget traditional painting because like, I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I've just kind of been just enthralled by the language of collage ever since. And actually, even though you say that um, sewing is quite a recent development, you've had a reference to sewing previously, I think even in works from like 2016, where you had uh, sewing patterns. And some of those works were like yeah. the first things I actually saw by you. And mm -hmm. um, I, w I was really interested in this whole um, uh, series of work that you made relating to the Zoot Suit and the Zoot Suit riots from the 1940s, like June 1943. Can you speak a bit about that kind of research part of your work? Yeah, so that project um, pretty much came at the time of the presidential election. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was just in shock uh, by what I was watching on the media, just kind of this um, harmful and problematic language to kind of, I don't know, it, it seemed like a way to kind of divide people. Yeah. And coming from this territory, it was just, there's a lot of people making assumptions about an area that they, they haven't lived in or right. experienced. So I, I had been thinking about trying to do a project about El Paso for a long time. And I just didn't know how to, how to start without thinking about things that were the most, I don't know, evident. So when I think about home, or my family, I think about food, and I think about, uh, like, I'm not going to do, like, burrito collages or, I don't know what, or Mexican flags. You considered like I, it, though, right? You thought about it, though, did you? I, I did for a moment, uh, uh -huh. and I, it felt too obvious. So right. when I, I was visiting home one time, and I was talking to my father, and he was telling me about the Zoot Suit. Uh -huh. And it's, it's something I had grown up knowing, just with the Pachuco culture, with lowriders. I just never really, and, and I didn't realize that that had originated in El Paso. Um, so what is kinda, the Zoot Suit, though? Because I think a lot of people listening, and I've only really discovered it through your work, is mm -hmm. what, what is the, the Zoot Suit and why is it such a political uh, item of clothing, like style? I mean, the, the Zoot Suit is kind of considered to be the first American suit. And it was pretty much furthered through jazz culture um, mm. by African-American communities. They don't really mm -hmm. know exactly where it originated, but I'm sure like with the, the jazz craze of the time, like with Cab Calloway, um, the, the suit kind of started to appear. And it yeah. is, I just, there's something so flamboyant about it and totally. almost armor-like um, and also like? uh, dapper. Uh, it's kind of like high-waisted, high yeah. isn't it? High-waisted pants, um, suspenders with a very yeah. low crotch, and then it tapers oh. at the ankles. And then you have oh. a, a jacket with a very um, broad shoulder. Um, yeah, it's almost like um, shoulder pads, isn't it? And a kind of long, yeah. loose, loose jacket. So the mm -hmm. jacket's kind of very distinctive in, its, in itself. 
Yes. Um, and often they'd wear a hat with a feather. I mean, you, you can see examples, and if you ever have seen Malcolm X's, um, or Denzel's right. character as, as Malcolm X, he, they're wearing zoot suits there, like uh, Dick Tracy. I feel like that's a zoot suit, the mask. I almost feel like um, Bugsy Malone and that kind of thing as well. You I'm, thinking oh, yeah. of the, I'm thinking of the weasels in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Do mm-hmm. you remember all of those? Yeah, they had <laughs> zoot suits too. That yeah, was totally, the zoot yeah. suit. Got it. Okay, cool, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. And by, by, by that point, it had become kind of so much part of popular culture in a way. But yes. It originated in the 1940s. Yeah, I think like 1939. And it had a okay. short phase and then probably phased out by like 43. Yeah. So Which was how, the how does that play into riots? your work? Yeah, and how does that play into your work? And, and what are the riots? I mean, I just, I kind of took on this, this as a topic to research. And the more I started to look into it, the more it related to everything that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was an American suit that was predominantly worn by men of color. Um, I, I liked that aspect. It was also worn um, by women who at the time, because of the war, they were starting to go back to work, right? Half factory jobs. So it was kind of this, the first time that people were allowed to wear pants. And that kind of came into this idea of self-styling. So it did feel like it crossed over a lot of lines in terms of race, class, gender. um, Mm And that's what I have found you got, most interesting. Have you got a suit for yourself? Have you ever had one made or anything? Well, you, you've had them made as part of your work, haven't you? I did, yeah. There's um, a local tailor there, uh, Mr. Alvarez. And when I first was doing research, I felt like I had to get a suit to just understand yeah. it. And I had one made for me. Um, but that's been cut up. <laughs> Everything it, it ended up, up in your work? Is it back in, your... oh, yeah. in the art? Yeah. Yeah. I had about four, four or five made. Wow. And they've all been cut up. Yeah. That poor tailor. I, I know. know. He's going to be like, where's the suit? I hope to see you in your suit. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go look at this picture. Yeah, I have <laughs> told them work. that. <laughs> so fashion plays a huge part in, in your work then, in your practice. Kind of recently. Um, the earlier collages were more about, um, I don't know, thinking about a kind of disembodied state. So kind of being free from, from the things that signify, I don't know, like a certain type of um, labeling on the body. But mm-hmm. I encountered just using a black body that the, that body is always kind of racialized. Like I'm not sure it has the freedom of being neutral. Just thinking back to the whole, um, I don't know, like the, the figure in Western art and there's a certain type of, there's a distinction between like a nude white figure to a black figure. Um, so I was always reluctant to add clothing because to me it signified too much. But when I started researching the zoot suit, it just kind of opened up um, this place where I'm at now. So it's, it's been exciting for sure. I, I, I found it really interesting when I heard that you'd had these suits made and then you kind of deconstructed them and tore them, not tore them apart, but like, you know, uh, cut them up. And this idea that somehow you've kind of analysed the creation of that look, which became the title of these riots, which at the time there was obviously so many different um, race riots happening. But this mm-hmm. particular riot wasn't called a race riot, even though it was, um, you know, related to that 
to, to, to race, but it was actually called the Zoot Suits Riots. So it's yes. this interesting thing that like the clothes themselves were constructed and then, and then that sort of takes over in, mm-hmm. in, in the way that the communication is. I, I just found it really interesting. And that's, that's kind of ultimately led to me um, cutting into them. So it's because of World War II rationing and just the, the changing atmosphere in yeah. Los Angeles around that time, it led to basically these Mexican youth, um, youths being, being stripped of their identity, which was the zoot suit, right? Because exactly. it had inc- incited so much, um, I don't know, a- animosity. Uh, yeah. The suit, it, it was illegal to make the suit after a certain amount of time. What? Um, it became yeah. illegal because of, because to of, make um, clothing? Yeah, because, or, like, because of rationing. suit. Because in wartime, they, it was, it oh, was right. seen as excessive and, and kind of against American principles or something. Because, but was because it like a gang like affiliation as well with the suit at some point? Was it like, right. I mean, it was both. At, at the time, the media was also kind of just kind of painting the, uh, I guess, predominantly Latino culture that was wearing the suit as a yeah. bunch of hoodlums are kind of up to no good. So mm-hmm. that people were already thinking that and um there i think there was a murder that had occurred in like 1942 which the media had been using as kind of this like inflammatory propaganda exactly so what the murderer was wearing a zoot suit um it was with uh, some latino youth um which i I don't know if he was wearing a suit exactly or not but i mean it's it's called the the sleepy lagoon murder Mm. Yeah, and I mean, wow. in that in in those riots, like five hundred Latino um, youth got arrested as well. So it was like, you know, it was very much, you know, um, kind of big social thing at the time. Yeah, and they were arrested supposedly for their own protection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And from what I had read, meanwhile, I think a lot of basically white servicemen um, off duty or living there locally were taking in taxis to kind of come in and deal with the, I guess what they were saying is the Latino problem. Um, And there are a few photos, but I just, I keep coming back to these images because you see just these young people on on the ground, like their clothes stripped from their bodies and just kind of just, it looked crazy. It was literally like total chaos. during, I guess, that week of the riots from like June 3rd to the 8th. Yeah. Wow. And actually, when you, when you think about collage and the way that you're bringing together different images, I noticed that there's a theme as well of like camouflage in your work. And mm-hmm. you've often had um, photographs and images of zebras, ze- zebras, um, almost lo- looks like they're dying or maybe they've been attacked or something. But, but you kind of have this kind of parallel with, with nature in, in, in that way as well. Mm-hmm. That that came about with this project. So as I was thinking simultaneously of the Zoot Suit and the history in El Paso, I had just been looking at my own work during like the the dreaded moment of residency <laughs> applications when you're like, what is my work about? And yeah. um, I kept just thinking about this word camouflage and I didn't really know much about it other than I grew up seeing that every day, like desert camo um, in El Paso. But mm-hmm. I just started to research the whole history, and it was really interesting because I found out that artists really furthered 
that history. Um, and there's a, there was a, um, I guess he taught at the Home Guard um, in England, but he's an, an artist, Roland Penrose. So oh, yes, he was Roland like a, yeah. a prominent player in camouflage theory and kind of developing tactics to show to the military so they could believe um, like in successful concealment. And there was mm-hmm. also another artist, Abbott Thayer, who's kind of known for doing these like angel paintings. Mm-hmm. But on the side, he also um, was really like uh, doing all these camouflage experiments with cutouts. And, uh, but what was also interesting is it was at the exact same time as the riots, mm-hmm. so early 40s, like 1943. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so have that's they been an inspiration to your work? Have they, have they inspired your work a lot? I mean, not them necessarily, but I was interested. So in Roland's book, The Home Guard Manual of Camouflage, he kind of breaks down these different forms of of camo. And one was called disruptive patterning. And Mm. I was really into that theory because basically, um, I guess the easiest explanation is the the zebra. So that, that form of camouflage is not one that is invisible, right? Like it's like you're very aware of the zebra and its pattern, but yeah. when it's when it's with other, I don't know how do you say multiple zebras. Zebra, zebra, zebras. Yes. And the and when they're in a group, and the let's say like a lion is attacking them, they the yeah. lion cannot see an individual zebra. It only sees like this mass of floating lines that are contrasting. Um, and they, wow. they use that for razzle-dazzle camouflage for warships. So you could see the ship in the distance, but you couldn't tell its scale, like which direction it was coming. And it's um, called razzle-dazzle camouflage. Razzle-dazzle camouflage, That's yeah. so but the, So what, is it, what does razzle-dazzle is, yeah. camouflage look like then on a, on a submarine? It's just stripes, like ship. these crazy black and white contrasting stripes at all different angles. And actually, and is that where razzle dazzle comes from? Is that is it what came first, like razzle dazzle dancing, or ra- give show in the razzle dazzle, or the or the camouflage? I'm not sure. I only know the camouflage uh, part of it. But razzle dazzle has appeared a lot in art as well, like through the generations, even in um, kind of 60s pop art um, and op art. I think there were certain so people like Bridget that were Riley would be described as razzle dazzle artist. Like I don't know, but I think she might have looked to it as something she might have looked at i know that peter blake definitely did and he's even made more recent kind of pop art boats he did one in the merseyside so it's kind of a theme you see and it's also influenced music and albums and many different things um Mm -hmm. but the the reason i was interested as well in this idea of uh camouflage was how it kind of um applied to you personally and i really resonated with something that you said about being queer and gay you sometimes go outside as you're growing up and you feel like you might need to camouflage yourself and i guess there's many different um versions of that you know it's applicable to all different kinds of people i guess but can you speak a bit about that kind of personal element to it yeah i mean when the when i started thinking about the project i think in earlier works it just felt very formulaic to try to add this like like a queerness as an element or blackness or um, Mexicanness, Latin, yeah. And I just realized I was already all of those things. 
So just mm-hmm. I could make anything, and that could still be a part of that dialogue. Um, but I was just thinking back to safety, um, specifically mm-hmm. people in the community that are even more mar- marginalized. Um, and just I had been hearing so much about murders in the city of the trans community, um, uh-huh. and ultimately just thinking. I don't know. It's just it's crazy to me that fashion can incite such animosity in someone's point of view. Mm, Um, So I was thinking about just kind of the safety of, um, I don't know, just members in the community, but also just um, there was something so like gay about this this suit to me um, (laughs) and that it was extremely flamboyant. So I I wanted to... It was quite to kind of queer it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a very, people still wear the suit and it is kind of, um, it could be a very macho kind of thing. So I wanted to just queer that history a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And there's something about the exaggerated form of it as well. It's mm-hmm. like this kind of drop shoulders very, and everything, isn't it? Yeah. It's very kind of, yeah, OTT. I've just remembered what the name of the, album was so there's an album from 1983 uh by omd who are like a kind of electronic um band from the 1980s and they had an album called dazzle ships that was what was in my head a minute ago. ah i see Rob. Yeah, and it was quite an influential <laughs> record when i was making electronic pop music everyone used to talk about it and um that's yeah, like a reference quite an interesting thing yeah, yeah yeah and also the plural of zebra is zebra Oh, okay. Oh, or zebras with an S. Zebras. Just, just, in case, okay. just in case listeners are wondering. But I didn't realize it's actually zebra as well. So it's singular and plural. Isn't that a special <laughs> word? I love it. <laughs> Rob, you are just an education today. Thanks. I feel like I'm Stephen Fry or something. Like. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh. <laughs> so, how, so, so when you took apart your, your suits that you would had made from your poor tailor, how did they end up in the work? Because I know that I've seen a lot of like leather belts and there's metal zippers and you have like shirt collars and cuffs and then the rest of the shirt is kind of missing. How do, how do you integrate these things into your collage? A, a lot of them are my own things. So initially, I, I don't like to... I guess I throw things away easily, but I also want to make sure that they get recycled into something. Mm. Um, so initially it was my own shirts that I didn't wear anymore or belts or shoes or socks. And then I'll I'll go to kind of thrift stores and I just have this intuitive sense, which I've, I've learned to trust more. And I just know when, when the work needs something and it'll just be like, I need a yellow terry cloth shirt or like, it's just like, I don't know how to describe it, but when I go to the, these kind of, um, secondhand stores, 
if mm-hmm. I see it, I know that it's something that could be integrated. Um, the weirdest thing is sometimes I'll get back to my studio and I'm not even looking in specific sections, but all the garments are my exact size. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, that's weird. Like you're literally just <laughs> randomly grabbing things. And a lot of them end up being like my, my measurements. So it's um, meant to be in some ways. Yeah. But with the suit, I, I did wait for some time because I knew all the work that had gone into it. <laughs> and yeah. I uh, I love Magritte. He's kind of like a guilty pleasure for me. Or maybe not uh-huh. so guilty, but um, there's a, a painting I saw of his that I believe is called Pascal's Coat. Mm-hmm. And it's this floating trench coat with all these holes in it. Um, uh-huh. And this kind of night, night um, background. And I was like, okay, this means I, I have permission to cut up these coats. So that's nice. why... So who do you look at then? You're saying Magritte, but who do you look, who collage wise? Who are the big artists? I guess Rauschenberg's in there, is he? And he's in there for sure. Um, but initially, I when I started just only working in I don't know the medium or the technique, I was looking a lot at the surrealists of the time. Um, mm-hmm. right. But I was really influenced by um, like Murray Oppenheim. Um, yeah. And Frida Kahlo, even though she's not technically one, there is a kind of an attachment with her to that movement. But um, not, I'm not the biggest Picasso fan, <laughs> so I'm right. trying to think of others. There's like um, Georges Huguenet, I believe was another collage artist. Um, right. And then just looking at Dada, so like Hannah Hawk, um, John Hartfield, um, Kurt Schwitters, um, mm. And then even kind of the, I don't know what, my French is terrible, the Nouveau Realisme, or the, um, there was like a group of artists, so it was like Mimo Rotella, um, Jacques Vallegle, and um, Francois Dufresne. So I was looking at a lot of those people early on. Um, But then kind of like some of my biggest influences in making art were like Kara Walker, um, Lyle right. Ashton yes, Harris, yes, yes. Um, Wangechi Mutu, like her earlier collage work, yeah. and, and John Stezaker, who I was so happy to see yes. that you all had interviewed him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked with him yeah. a bit as well. He's amazing. Yeah. He's so, so, and what so, about, so What good. about Matisse? Does Matisse play in? Because I think of the snail, I think of the colours mm-hmm. of the snail, and, I mean, he was, when in his later stages, he became, like, predominantly a collage artist as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the this body of work, I was thinking of Matisse in the sense, like kind of his large gouache cutouts. Yeah. Yes. And I had not, I'd been working primarily with color that I had found in the magazines. Right. And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I could just paint paper and add that in. So I, I kind of had not really thought about that until I saw his work um, in person. Are they quite fragile, your works? Do you, do you show them unframed or framed is how do they um get protected because there's so many elements and there's so many pieces that they're quite they could be easily damaged right no they're pretty durable and i'm not Uh i'm not precious with them um so i work on the floor mainly um kind of like jackson pollock style like i have this drop cloth that people think is art but it's just literally kind of the area where i'm making all these things so floor, floor to wall, just so I can get a distance to see the works. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get, I use like a spray mount 
just to kind of get things down temporarily. Um, uh-huh. What else? Sometimes hot glue, sometimes epoxy, and then everything gets sealed with um, an archival glue. So oh, they, it does. So paint goes over yeah. the top of it. Ah, mm-hmm. right, 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 right. So what is or your like what, what is what is the what is the dream? Where would you want to be like shown? What is the like for a collage artist? Where is the best place to have, or just for any artist, I guess? But where is the best place? Where are you? What's the dream? Oh my god, I don't know. I don't know if I've really thought about. I mean, to be included in um, the recent biennial. Like yeah, the Whitney Biennial. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. We loved yeah. your work. Yeah, that was Russell so took me to it. That's where I saw your work. Yeah, standout. That yeah. was so surreal, and just to be surrounded by, um, I don't know, just like really amazing artists that are working in collage, just yeah. historically. Um, mm. I don't know. How I did just, that come about? How, what was the process of that? Like a studio visit and a couple of visits. So around the time with my first solo show at Company. I had um, I I had known Rue Hockley a little bit because I'd done a residency called LMCC, and I, that's where I first met her. And she actually told me about this amazing book about um, Caribbean surrealists called Refusal of the Shadow, mm-hmm. uh, which I I like I really come back to a lot. But um, so I'd met her then, like in two thousand uh, like fourteen. Mm-hmm. And then she came to visit with Jane. And then it was just like a crazy year. So from that show, I had done a, um, kind of an installation at Recess Art. And they mm-hmm. came by to visit that. And I was like, huh, like they, they are coming to a lot of my things, but I didn't think anything of it. Um, and then they, they scheduled another visit. And then they, they had basically come to just tell me that they would like to include my work. Wow. Um, yeah, but then so I, cool. it was you had to keep quiet about it for some time. <laughs> yeah, of course, was it a game changer? Did you feel like after that things shifted? I mean, in a way, I feel like so much change has happened really since that show at New Museum, yeah. and that was kind of at the time I I, I was already working on this new body of work, mm-hmm. but I, I'm really happy. So a lot of times too, I just throw things away. Like I, I take them as experiments, like don't need them again, but I, I hadn't thrown away those particular works. So when they asked to put them in this show, I was so happy that I hadn't. You'd hung on to them. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, so I don't know, it's just been kind of a whirlwind. I really am happy with the, the gallery I work with at Company. Yeah, it's a great team. Yeah. I love that it's yeah. a team of women, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which definitely. reminds me of my upbringing and, um, and the biennial as well. I mean, it's all just feels kind of surreal. Can we talk a bit about your titles? Because mm-hmm. I love the title of your show at Company Gallery that was called Fat Cat Came to Play. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your titles also seem to reference very personal kind of, I don't know, memories or maybe even locations. But can you speak a bit about how you title your work? And is that important part of the process? I actually, I really don't like titling things. Um, really? <laughs> it's, you know what it is? Because it almost feels like you have to, it's like the work shouldn't be defined, but with the title, okay. it's somehow defined by that. But I realize I can't have untitled one, two, three, like on and on and on. Mm. Um, so when I get to titles, I really kind of just mine music and literature 
because I think those okay. are kind of some of my strongest influences. So Fat Cat came to play was just thinking about um, the, the language of the time, like kind of this 40s dialogue. So mm-hmm. kind of a, a cat being like the, the jazz player. Yeah. Um, but also kind of a joke on that song, um, Zoot Suit. I believe it's Zoot Suit Riots. Yeah, yeah. Is that mm-hmm. the song? Um, yeah. And then other titles, I look to um, this writer, Gloria Anzaldúa, who um, is from Texas as well, and writes a lot about just kind of the, the landscape, um, being, being Latino, um, yeah. poetry, and what else? Um, Chavela Vargas, this um, famous Mexican musician. Uh-huh. So they, they do come from kind of things that I kind of have gone back and highlighted in books or just songs that I listen to a lot. Because I find them to be very evocative, actually. Like, they, they kind of conjure up very sort of poetic moods or something. Like, I remember mm-hmm. the title of your work called um, Pull a Comb Through Your Coal Black Hair, which mm-hmm. to me just sounds almost like a poem in itself. Like, yes. it's just the most perfect sentence. Yeah, I, where, where, where did that I one love come? that one. I feel like that came from, that might have come from that song. Or a song. I can't remember which one specifically, but originally I wanted the show to be called um, "Pull a Comb Through Your Cold Black Hair." Yeah, it's a beautiful um, title. Maybe but I do look a lot to poetry. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it could be like a retrospective. <laughs> and that work actually had movie posters in it, didn't it? Yeah, um, and flags and different things. Yeah. So the really early on when I. And in the research phase, I was buying a lot of memorabilia from the, that film Zoot Suit, which I had grown up seeing all the time as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. And that was kind of like a reference to John Stensicker, um with uh, his film stills. But also yeah. when I was a painter, I was painting um, these large scale movie posters for kind of B-grade horror sci-fi films. And then I was casting myself in them. No, so right. Right, kind let's of, go back to this. Yeah. What was you doing? Did you, where, were you, where were you showing these posters or was this just your own personal project? This was undergrad. Um, right. So a lot of that work, uh, I've, I've just always been really into film. Um, so like reading a lot of film theory and like photography theory, but uh-huh. just kind of the, I don't know, I loved just the design that went into these posters. Yeah. Um, and even and like you would paint yourself into the poster. You were there, your, your face was on it. Yeah, so kind of casting myself as like as the other or as the Frankenstein or, or the monstrosity, um, and then I had I kind of that. created these um, Mexican wrestler identities. Uh, so that work names? was really did wild. You have wrestler, did you have wrestler names? Yeah, there was two. So there was one which was um, El El um, El Negro, and then the yeah. other one was El El Pocho. Who was the best um, one? I mean, they were often fighting each other. <laughs> yeah, so who, who won most, matches. I don't. I don't know if anyone ever won. I think they just yeah. both got tired. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever wins, really, do they? Yeah. These no are the two parts wins. of we're yourself, all... like fighting yeah, exactly. yourself, battling it yeah. out. It's still <laughs> continuing. It's an endless battle. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So um, what body of work really are we funny. into now? Because the last thing that I saw was um, a work of yours was this mobile of suits that you had at the uh, independent yes, art independent, fair this year, yeah. which mm-hmm. is i think called the invisible man was it which is, again is an amazing title what where are we at now in 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 
in your work and practice and what what is the next body of work we're going to see i'm still i'm still working with the zoot suit but i am ready i always have these kind of back burner projects and i allow them to just develop naturally but i think now's the time to just kind of move to the next thing so that's that's partially what i guess i'll be doing in this state of confinement um just kind of rethinking how I can move to the next body of work. But yeah, I mean, the, the Zoot Suit work has really just been amazing in terms of all the research that I learned. Um, and that the book, um, Invisible Man, I always come back to. And when I reread it, I was shocked that there is kind of a little passage about Zoot Suiters. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So that's that's kind of, it just felt like everything that I kept coming across in research, it was like meant to be brought yeah. together. The Invisible Man has a kind of political uh, stance as well, because it's about like marginalized people or minorities in society are deemed invisible. I mean, it's, it is, what I love about Invisible Man is the the main character never, you never really know who he is. He's just kind of uh. the narrator. And it takes place in Harlem. Um, and it, it is a complex novel in that it's kind of, it reminds me of kind of this, like, um, it talks about the difficulties of being seen, a kind of like hyper-visible and invisible mm. at the same time. Mm. But also there was a, a period where there was like a, um, a lot of African-Americans kind of joining this Marxist doctrine. It kind of covers that part. Um, and then I thought it was just amazing to bring up this this idea of the zoot suitors. And I'm always thinking of this particular quote where Ellison talks about um, like these men being distorted in the interest of design um, as as just kind of a commentary on the outfit itself. Got it. And do you think do you think growing up working class has uh, played into your work a lot? I think there was a quote I heard that that you said that you thought. Because she's working class, she'd have to work twice as hard due to socioeconomic factors to get anywhere. I mean, working class was definitely important, but my family, I just came from a family of hardworking women. So it wasn't kind of, it wasn't like you have to work harder because of your appearance. Just in general in life, if you want to get anything, you have Mm -hmm. to work for it. So there was this mentality that you can't really go anywhere just kind of sitting on the sidelines. Um, mm. So I do feel like that was really influential for me. Um, and and to have right. their support. Yeah, they're not, mm. I don't, they're not artists, but I do think creative in their, their fields. Um, and maybe my mom too, she had me fairly young. So I grew up listening to a lot of music and that probably was the, another marker of collage. Like we would listen to like Aretha Franklin and Al Green and then like the Sugar Cubes and Depeche mm. Mode and um, Spanish music. And it was just kind of, it was super eclectic. And actually that's what I like about your work is that I feel like even though it's collage, when I first heard about your work, you immediately think of like paper. But I love mm. the fact that you have like, 
you know, wire from fences or, you know, wood or clothes or tables. You, you've, you've got so many different materials. Rubber gloves. It, yeah. yeah, rubber gloves, like sewing patterns, everything. But the fact it all sort of is, it, it's all kept together and tied together by this very kind of like rigorous intellectual investigation that you're doing. And I'm also mm. really into the disruption. That's why I use that word in the intro. Um, and the way that you kind of will hide um, images or, or, you know, um, c- conceal um, an existing image and, and paint over it or, or, or cover it so that you can't interpret that image in the way that it was designed to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how did you start doing that part of it? The kind of like hiding what, what's there, almost like creating a new surface? I mean, I think that's what I've always been done, uh, drawn to with the history of collage. Like, it's, it seems to have always appeared in these moments of kind of political upheaval. Um, yes. And just this in, in, inherent need to subvert. Um, and that's, I don't know, just thinking about, I don't know, just the way that things are advertised. Um, that was really important for me to kind of take what this meant or to take things from the past, um, at least with the the pornographic magazines, and yeah. try to bring them, um, kind of take narratives that are um, forgotten or just not brought front and center and kind of give them a new life. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah, so you're repositioning the past, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Cool. Well, Troy, we ask uh, every guest that comes on some very serious, hard-hitting questions. The first one <laughs> is... If you could do an imaginary art heist, you could have any work of art in the world, whatever it is, from anywhere, what would it be and why? <laughs> I was worried about this question because it's hard for me to choose <laughs> one of anything. Um, <laughs> you can pick more than one. We, we're, we're fine with that. Okay. We have big vans. Big vans. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely choose something from like the Russian constructivists because they were really influential to me. So either maybe... Oh, right. A piece by Malayevich, um, yeah, or oh, Elizitsky. Cool. Um, then, what do they look like? Oh. Describe them for people listening. I mean, they're just kind of abstract, geometric abstraction. Uh-huh. I'm really drawn to that work. Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a certain equilibrium um, that occurs even in the work of, of Mondrian. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I'm really drawn to that work at times. Um, who else would I? I can see Mondrian in your weaving, in the the oh, yeah. making, the pattern making. Um, like Sophie Tauber Arp. Um, I'd really yes. want a piece by Jean Arp. Um, yes, a sculpture. And then, yeah, Joaquin Torres Garcia. Mm. It's one of my favorite know. artists. It's kind of a, a Latin work, American yeah. constructivist, also using kind of symbols and geometry. Um, and then probably something by Mark Bradford. I mean, he's been, I don't know, yes. like I really look up to his work and it's just so beautiful. Him. No, I think I would be too scared to meet him. <laughs> but uh, I, do, I do, I really do love his work. Yeah, he's I guess he has a collage theme going, running through all of his work then, I guess. I yeah, really thought for sure. Yeah, especially with those um, like Mimo Rotella and, and kind of the, the use of day collage. Yes. I think that would be... I don't know, I keep thinking like about Wilfredo Lam too. I love yeah. Wilfredo Lam. Yeah. 
I would oh really God. love one of those works. He's, he's either that's got a so slightly great. Basquiat, he has a Basquiat kind of like line oil stick vibe going through the work. I mean, there's a lot of things. I When I was in Paris, ugh, I don't know if it was like last year or the year before, they had a whole retrospective at Pompidou. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the same one. It was at the Tate before and it traveled to Paris. Okay. I was blown away because I felt Me like too. I would never see that show here in the States. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just sculpture, painting, prints. Oh. Um, really prolific artist and amazing style. <laughs> I even love the early paintings that he did as well, like the kind of mm-hmm. more traditional ones, you know, more self-portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was Cuban, wasn't he? I was just thinking about Cuba because we interviewed um, Billy Porter, who's an actor, and he's been in Cuba recently buying um, oh, amazing. Art, art there. He's really into Cuban art. Yeah, he's Cuban. I believe he was like um, half Chinese, half Cuban, but I'm not yeah, exactly. sure. Um, but I, I kind of think about him a lot in my work. Yeah, that makes sense. And when when it comes to style, then, so who is there like a a fashion designer historically or currently contemporary that you look to their clothing and think, wow, that's someone who's an artist in their own right that you'd like to wear? Ooh, uh, I don't know. Um, In terms of style, I've always been, I've always been told that I'm an old soul, and I just love kind of that look from the '40s, '50s, '60s. Um, so kind of the silhouettes of the shirts and pants, like high-waisted pants, the side parts. Um, with designers, I like, uh, I remember seeing like a, a Chaparelli book. Oh, wow. And I really loved her designs. They're just super surreal. Um, yeah. And then contemporary, uh, I do, I maybe shop too much at Acne. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of one. I know there are some, I'm just blanking. Um I did also, a, uh, Chaparelli's like amazing. Oh yeah, love, so love, love um, Chaparelli, um, early Pierre Car- Cardin. Mm. Yes, um, I can see that. Yes, I don't know. I, I just like kind of that more classic silhouette with the little, yeah. like something that's unexpected, like original Christian also, Dior like vibe and. Mm-hmm. I also like the fact you were talking before about kind of vintage clothes as well, and like you know sustainability on that level. Mm-hmm. that's kind of an old soul thing because uh, <laughs> I always like the idea of clothes, you know, sort of existing for a long time and going through different generations. Mm. Yeah. So the other question we ask every guest is what is your favorite color? Ooh, um, that may be more than one too. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed when uh, John Sezaker said midnight blue. Oh really? Because as, as a kid, I was obsessed with that crayon um mm-hmm. midnight blue and uh i do kind of i mean i don't know if i don't know if gray is a color because it falls between like an achromatic but i, I do love kind of like a charcoal gray mm-hmm. um mm, i like a charcoal gray i like yellow sometimes like it's always yes. in my work i have to fight it because i like it um <laughs> uh but mostly color. blues blues or grays are kind of favorites that i come to Good to know. Love that. So we also asked one more question because we're all in lockdown. Have you discovered a hidden quarantine talent that you didn't know you had, but since we've been locked down, you've realized you've got? <laughs> Not hidden, but um, I used to play music a lot when I was younger. Uh-huh. Um, so I've been trying to get back into singing and um, playing guitar again. Oh. Do you write songs? 
I used to, yeah. I just felt like I was a lot more emo or something as a teenager. <laughs> so when I when I sit down to write, I'm just like, eh. like it just feels like too much. But I'm I'm trying to enter that headspace again. Um, Interesting. Mm-hmm. What what are you working to next? What's the next adventure for you? Um, in terms of my work, oh, work yeah. or yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking a lot about the women in my family. Uh, so my, my, my grandmother passed away maybe about six years ago and we were really close and I, I kind of want to do something, um, just to honor her. So a lot of my work still kind of comes back to like a place of family, like some like narratives or, mm-hmm. um, so I'm thinking a lot about that and kind of how I would often draw from her old pictures as a kid. Mm, right. Um, and then I'm not going to be teaching. So I got a, a Hodder Fellowship through Princeton. Um, so I'll just be allowed to make work for the next year. Oh, right. Great. So is that, is that, cool. that, that a fund you for a year? Yeah, I've never, I've always worked um, <laughs> while making yeah. art. Uh, and so this will be the first time that it'll, it'll be like in the studio 24 oh 7. I'm yeah, super so excited. like a relief, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Congratulations, Troy. That's I'm looking brilliant. forward to seeing what, what the results are Thanks. of that. Yeah, cannot wait. Intense period of work. Um, <laughs> Once this confinement ends, I can start to. Well, then maybe now's a good time to read and like. research yeah. and all that. Yeah, I'm definitely in that phase now. Um, but it does take time, and then it'll lead me to other things, and I'm just excited. What do you think it's going to be like when we get out of this? What's your kind of impression of where the world's going to be at in the art art world? I mean, it's hard to say. I feel, I mean, people, I think the art world will be fine for the most part, but mm-hmm. it's just hard to imagine things going back to normalcy as they were. I just feel like things will be forever different. Um mm. I don't know, but I, I really feel just so much gratitude that that I'm safe, that I have an apartment, and um, I'm, I'm able to distance myself. Yeah. Um, but it, it's hard to say. But I, I kind of just take small bites. Like I think a little bit about it, and then I distract myself <laughs> with teaching yeah. or like reading or home workouts. Good. I need to take your um your guidance on home workouts because I'm useless. I just <laughs> cannot get motivated. I've been so like n- doing no. You're good at the reading, at though, Rob. You're very good at reading. Yeah, right. Um, well, <laughs> it has been such a joy to spend this hour. Thank with you, you, Troy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was nice to talk and, about uh, work. Hopefully, when this is all over, we can actually hang out in New York. Um, which is where we were supposed to be right now. Yes, but exactly. Instead, yeah. we're all at our respective homes. But I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to meeting you in person. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, thank you so much. For images of all artworks we've discussed today, we will be posting on our Instagram, at TalkArt. What's your handle, Troy? I think it's just Troy Mitchie. Yeah, at Troy Mitchie. And we will link to him on our Instagram if you can't find him. So it's all sorted for you. And thank you, uh, everyone. We'll Thanks, be Troy. Back very soon. Thank you thank for you. listening. Thanks, Troy. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. 
Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to TalkArt at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.